O king, storm of majestic splendor, who pillages the mountains all alone. Deluge, indefatigable serpent, hurling yourself at the rebel land, reaping like barley the necks of the insubordinate. Hero, whose awesomeness covers the mountains like a south storm. Ninurta, who makes the good tiara, the rainbow flash like lightning. Dragon, who turns on himself, strength of a lion snarling at a snake, roaring hurricane, releasing fury on the rebel lands, overwhelming their assemblies. Ninurta, king, son who has forced homage to his father, far and wide. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age and the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest. Kelton. And we are listening to Lugal A, otherwise known as The Exploits of Ninurta. As will be usual for this podcast, we're getting the text from Oxford's Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature website, or the ETCSL. This is a Sumerian myth. The version we have was written down around 1800 BCE. The passage you just heard was on the Sumerian heaven god, talking to Ninurta, the warrior god. So Ninurta is called Lord or Hero. And his father, Enlil, is the patron god of Nippur, god of kingship. We met him last episode. So Ninurta has a talking weapon named Shaur-Ur, the magic mace. It can also fly and transform into a winged lion. So Shaur-Ur says to Ninurta, Heaven copulated with the verdant earth. She has borne him a warrior who knows no fear. The Asad, a murderer from the mountains, whose face knows no shame, impudent of eye, an arrogant male. It has sired offspring in the mountains and spread its seed far and wide. The plants have unanimously named it king over them. Like a great wild bull, it tosses its horns amongst them. It's notable that the plants seem to have voted the Asag into office. So in this case, mythology might preserve traces of collective decision-making. As we'll see from the long history of egalitarian societies, democracy is older than monarchy. Anyway, Asag is Sumerian for disorder. This is a supernatural monster who lives in the mountains, so Asag is a threat to the god's authority. And we see in the text an explicit dichotomy between wild and domestic. So Ninurta reaps his enemies' necks like barley, and he rips up his enemies like weeds, and they bow to him like exhausted wild asses, whereas Asag spreads its seeds far and wide. We see a fair amount of bull imagery, which is extremely common in Mesopotamian poetry. Asag is called a wild bull. Ninurta is described as like a bull, as well as a bull with the features of a wild bull. So, you know, the text is painting a picture of Ninurta as the ultimate domesticator and everything else as either wild stuff to be destroyed or domestic stuff that he has control over. You can only control or destroy things, I've been told. Yep, that's uh, a thing you will also keep coming back to. Yeah, 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 that's good leadership. <laughs> they colonize, right? <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. So the talking mace continues. Its warriors constantly come, raiding the cities. For them, a shark's tooth has grown up in the mountains. It has stripped the trees. Before its mites, the gods of those cities bow towards it. My master, this same creature, has erected a throne dais. It is not lying idle. It actually decides the land's lawsuits, just as you do. Who can compass the Asag's dread glory? Who can counteract the severity of its frown? People are terrified. Fear makes the flesh creep. Their eyes are fixed upon it. My master, the mountains, have taken their offerings to it. So essentially, the Asag is usurping the role of the king. He's protecting his subjects and raiding his enemies. He's extracting lumber from the mountains. He's deciding lawsuits. And he's collecting tribute from subjects via fear of death. 
So this threatens the hierarchy of the gods and the kingship of Ninurta's dad, Enlil, both symbolically and by literally raiding Sumerian cities. Could it be interpreted that the Isag, you know, raiding the, the cities of uh, Domestica would be these non-domesticated seeds coming back and just sort of blowing back in and just being like, hey, no, 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 it's the wheat you didn't want this time. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how I interpreted the line that's like the plants have elected him as their leader. It's I like, see. If Ninurta, the, you know, the civilized king is not controlling the plants, then the plants are going to revert to the wild state. Yeah, which yeah, is, yeah, you know, Asag is the wild seeds, the wild bull, and you know, yeah, so the plants have elected this guy to control them into being better for us to eat. Yeah, no, oh, that makes sense. Sounds like this whole myth was in response to something. Just a bunch of dudes not farming yep. and giving taxes. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's no, interesting how big of a threat it is for people to just to choose to do something else with their lives. God forbid people be self-sustaining. Very literally, actually, in this case, yeah. <laughs> yep. So Shower Ur continues. Hero, they have appealed to you. Because of your superior strength, they are looking to you here. Not a single warrior counts except for you. Hero, there have been consultations with a view to taking away your kingship. Ninurta, it is confident that it can lay hands on the powers received by you. Day by day, the Asag adds territories to its domain. But you will force it into the shackles of the gods. You, antelope of heaven, must trample the mountains beneath your hooves. Who has so far been able to resist its assaults? The besetting Asag is beyond all control. Its weight is too heavy. Ninurta, neither the axe nor the all-powerful spear can penetrate its flesh. No warrior like it has ever been created against you. By Ninurta, whose form Inki contemplates with favor. Son of Enlil, what is to be done? The Lord cried, alas, so that heaven trembled, and earth huddled at his feet, and was terrified at his strength. Enlil became confused, and went out of the Akur. The mountains were devastated. That day the earth became dark. The Anuna trembled. The hero beat his thighs with his fists. The gods dispersed. The Anuna disappeared over the horizon like sheep. So again, we will see that Asag is an existential threat, not just to Ninurta's power, but to the kingship of heaven. The authority of Ninurta and also Enlil, is apparently legitimate only because of the consent of other gods. His superior strength is a useful asset, but his power can be removed, especially if the Asag wins. The Lord arose, touching the sky. Ninurta went to battle. With one step, he covered a league. He was an alarming storm and rode on the eight winds towards the rebel lands. His arms grasped the lance. The mace snarled at the mountains. The club began to devour all the enemy. An enormous hurricane, irresistible, went before the hero stirred up the dust, caused the dust to settle, leveled high and low, filled the holes. It caused a rain of coals and flaming fires. The fire consumed men. It overturned tall trees by their trunks, reducing the forest to heaps. Earth put her hands on her heart and cried harrowingly. The tigress was muddled, disturbed, cloudy, stirred up. The hero Ninurta led the march through the rebel lands. He killed their messengers in the mountains. He crushed their cities. He smote their cowherds over the head like fluttering butterflies. He tied together their hands with hearing grass, so that they dashed their heads against walls. The lights of the mountain did not gleam in the distance any longer. People gasped for breath. Those people were ill. They cursed the earth. They considered the day of the Asag's birth a day of disaster. The Lord caused bilious poison to run out over the rebel lands. As he went, the gall followed. Anger filled his heart. 
and he rose like a river in spate and engulfed all the enemies. So Ninurta has to defeat the Asag in battle. This will result in an epic war, so stay tuned to see how it goes. But first, today we're going to look at the domestication of cereals during the pre-pottery Neolithic in the Northern Fertile Crescent. We're going to define all those words in a second. So generally, time-wise, we're going to start with the end of the Younger Dryas, around 9600 BCE, and today we're going to end around 8000 BCE. So we're going to cover all of the pre-pottery Neolithic A and a little bit of the pre-pottery Neolithic B period. So just a quick review from last episode. Up to the early 10,000s BCE, people in Syro-Palestine were largely sedentary foragers. They relied on forest habitats for fruit, nuts, game, and timber, and other resources. In terms of food, they were largely reliant on large seeded grasses growing on the fringes of forests, including the wild ancestors of wheat and barley. We talked about the climatic event called the Younger Dryas. So this was a period of colder and drier climate between about 10,800 and 9,600 BCE. This was bad for both trees and large seeded grasses. Forest regions receded, taking the forest steppe ecotone that people relied on with them. So without access to these forests, people were forced to rely on small seeded grasses, which were more work for less nutrition. So when the Younger Dryas ended around 9600 BCE, this marked the beginning of the Holocene, which is the geological epoch of modern temperatures, or the beginning of the modern climate regime. This also marked the beginning of the pre-pottery Neolithic A period, or the first archaeological period of the Neolithic. So during this period, climate got warmer and wetter, and the habitat of large seeded grasses expanded again. So people who were already used to processing small seeded grasses found these grasses larger, more nutritious, and more efficient to collect. So people were living in a warmer and wetter climate, and they were surrounded by grasses that were previously more rare and harder to get to. So they started experimenting with the growing conditions of these grasses. A better climate produced more natural resources in general, which meant that there were fewer consequences for experimenting with the food supply. You know, if you make a change to the way that grasses grow that impedes their growth, that's not a huge problem because there are other foods to forage and you're not going to starve. Whereas there were higher risks in the middle of the Younger Dryas tampering with your only food supply. And because of this warmer and wetter climate, there was a bigger potential payoff for finding more efficient ways to cultivate and grow grain. So all of this created perfect growing conditions for the wild ancestors of domestic cereals and provided an environment in which people could freely experiment with the growing conditions of those large seeded grasses. So I mentioned the pre-pottery Neolithic. As far as I'm concerned, this period lasted between about 9,600 and 7,000 BCE. So from the end of the Younger Dryas and the beginning of the Holocene to the invention of pottery around 7,000 BCE or a little bit later. So, like I mentioned, this is the beginning of two new eras. In geology, we're moving from the Pleistocene to the Holocene. So, from the end of the Ice Age to the beginning of the modern climate epoch, or the epoch that ended very recently, depending on who you ask. And in archaeology, we're moving from the Paleolithic, or the Old Stone Age, to the Neolithic, or the New Stone Age. This division is named after different types of stone tools, which we will not be getting into. What's more important to us is that the Neolithic is when people domesticate plants and animals, which we'll talk about. So archaeologists divide the pre-pottery Neolithic into two parts. The pre-pottery Neolithic A starts in 9600 and ends sometime around 8500 BCE. Different sources will put that figure sometime between 8700 and 8300 BCE. I've split the difference. And the pre-pottery Neolithic B lasts, again, from that date in the mid-8000s to around 7000 BCE when people develop pottery in this region. Notably, the end of the PPNA and the beginning of the PPNB coincides with the first evidence we have for domestic agriculture and human control over the reproductive conditions of species like emmer and einkorn. So the place we'll be looking at today is the northern part of the Fertile Crescent. 
or northern Syria and southeastern Anatolia. This is near where the Tigris and the Euphrates flow out of the mountains. It was part of the same regional phenomenon as Syro-Palestine, but with a different material culture. So like I said, the climate is warmer and wetter than it had been. Conditions are much better for the kinds of nutritious grass that people had relied on for thousands of years at this point. And of course, a more productive environment in general grows more food for herds of animals that people are also relying on to hunt, including species that they will later domesticate. So all in all, it is a pretty perfect place to live if you are a sedentary forager experimenting with different cultivation techniques of certain types of cereals. So to take a quick look at geography, we're going to be centered on the highland valleys in the southeastern foothills of the Taurus Mountains. Specifically, we'll be looking at the Karajada region in southeastern Turkey. In this region, you get mountain valleys that are fed by rain. You get a river that runs through the middle of it, which obviously brings fish and transportation and fresh water. And because of the way mountain valleys are set up, you get drainage for free. So we're going to be centered on the valleys that these rivers are cutting through the mountains. Obviously, there are a huge number of benefits to living next to a river. You get a large amount of fresh water, so you drink and animals come to drink that you can hunt. Also, the river brings fish. And also the river floods annually and deposits alluvial soil along its banks. So alluvial soil is soil deposited on the surface by water, either by river or by rain. In addition to the river floodplains, rain also flows down the sides of the valley and deposits alluvial soil on the flat bottom of the valley. These small, fine particles of soil are perfect for both cultivation and later agriculture. You know, much, much later on, we'll look at Sumerian city-states, which are built in a massive alluvial plain full of the soil in perfect conditions for canals and irrigation agriculture, which we'll talk about much, much later. So during the pre-pottery Neolithic, we see a new reliance on wetland resources. I already mentioned fish, but also reeds and rushes that grow along the river banks that can be gathered and made into both baskets and houses, and certainly other tools that we don't have much record of because they've decayed. So I mentioned that these are perfect conditions for these kinds of large-seeded grasses that grow you know, in well-watered areas. Certainly if people are already living next to a river for a daily source of fresh water, that river can also supply water to land as you're experimenting with cultivation practices. But another feature of these mountain valleys is that geographically there's not much room for settlements to expand. So not enough land to grow food to support a huge population, and not enough room physically to build more houses. So this might be one reason why complex societies didn't develop immediately after people started growing more grain, is that physically there was not enough room for them in the places where they were growing grain. So I mentioned the Karajada region. So this is in the northern Fertile Crescent, not far from Gebekli Tepe, which we'll talk about today. We're directly north of Abu Huraira, which we visited briefly last time. We're a ways up the Euphrates River. In general, the same things are happening on both sides of the modern Turkey-Syria border. We just happen to be on the Turkish side today. So Karajada is a specific volcano in southeastern Turkey. Its elevation ranges between 800 and 2,000 meters above sea level. The weather there is temperate. It almost never falls below freezing. It receives between 400 and 700 millimeters of rain a year, mostly from December to April. This is two to three times the minimum for dry agriculture, or agriculture that relies on rainfall. The bedrock in this region is made of volcanic basalt. The soil is clayey and nutrient-rich. It can store a lot of water, and because of the geography, excess water can drain downhill. So because you have a lot of rainfall, you have a river, obviously, you have soil that is well set up to store water, and you have temperate weather that is probably not going to freeze during the period that you're going to be growing your grain. You know, these are perfect conditions for cultivation, and it would be easy for a sedentary village in this region to support itself with minimal effort. So on this mountain in particular, we see wild einkorn that is genetically similar to later domestic einkorn, which probably tells us that this is one of the regions where einkorn wheat was first domesticated. This is also true with emmer, although there may have been other domestication events in the same region. So either way, descendants of wild grass from this region spread across the Fertile Crescent as domestic grains and cereals. 
And even the modern bread wheat that we use today incorporates some of these genes that were first domesticated from wild cereals around 9000 BCE in the Karajada region. So the next couple episodes are going to deal with what we call the Neolithic Revolution, or the Agricultural Revolution. This is the process by which society became reliant on a small number of staple crops for the vast majority of their food. It was more of a process lasting several millennia than it was a single historical event. Generally, what we're looking at is the gradual development of increasingly selective cultivation practices. You know, specifically, people are artificially selecting for certain traits so that over time they'll be able to genetically engineer larger seeds, an annual growing schedule, seeds that don't fall off the plant, things like that. So eight crops are recognized as central to this process in the Near East. These are called the eight founder crops. So we have cereals like emmer and einkorn, which are wild instances of wheat, as well as barley. We have legumes like peas, chickpeas, lentils, and bitter vetch, and flax, which was used for both oil and fibers. Obviously, there are other crops that we'll talk about, but these are some of the eight most important. All of these are annual crops that were self-pollinated. They're native to the Fertile Crescent area, and each crop is interfertile with itself and its wild variety, which means that it can reproduce not only with domestic crops, but also with its wild ancestors. So there are three stages in the development of agriculture, gathering, gardening, and farming. So this first stage of gathering or foraging is what people were doing for the first 300,000 years of their history. That is, they would go where wild plants grow and then pick them and then carry them home. We occasionally find caches of seeds gathered in the wild long before the Neolithic. And foraging people are not only reliant on the wild distribution of these plants, Modern ethnographic research into foraging peoples shows that they have lots of different ways to manage local resources, to ensure that plants keep growing in the region, to ensure that they don't deplete the natural basis of the plants that they rely on for food, and so on. So sometimes we see selective gathering, allowing enough of the plant to reproduce on its own. Sometimes we see burning, you know, which eliminates certain species and makes other species more abundant, things like that. So the second stage is cultivation or gardening. This is when you take seeds from the best wild plants and then replant it in alluvial soil near your home. This allows you to harvest it near your village instead of in its natural habitat, making the existing process of going out to gather food more efficient. You know, we have evidence of this going back tens of thousands of years on and off, and people taking the step probably didn't think of themselves as inventing something totally new rather than just making an existing process more efficient. So the third phase is, of course, domestication or farming. This is when people have total control over the process of reproduction, giving them the ability to artificially select for certain traits and over time modify the genes of the plants that they're growing. In other words, people are selecting for more desirable traits. So some of these desirable traits include larger seed size, more nutritional content, you know, controlling when the plant separates from its stem so that you don't lose the seed. So again, people are making an existing process more efficient you know, as a result of gradual innovations taking place over millennia, we see the results in terms of plants that are clearly domestic by the mid-8000s BCE, hence the beginning of the PPNB, depending on where you draw that line. So like I said, the main goal is human control over plants' reproduction. You want to control which plants reproduce and when. Obviously, it does you no good if all of the seeds grow at a time when you're not gathering them, and then they blow away in the wind. You want to control which plants don't reproduce. So obviously, you don't want weeds sucking up all the nutrients from the plants that you do want. Depending on the ecosystem, it might be in your interest to burn down trees or other plants to make way for faster growing grasses that you harvest. So, you know, all of these are ways to modify both the crops and their environment in order to make farming easier and more efficient. And like I said, the fact that we have evidence of cultivation you know, all around the world going back tens of thousands of years is proof that this is not a linear process where one phase automatically leads to the next one. So when we look at the movement from one phase to another in the prehistoric Near East, you know, that's not the universal progression of human society. That's just how society progressed at this particular place in time, you know, leading up to what we will call the ancient Near East. 
So to take a look at some of these cereals, emmer is a type of large seeded grass. During the Natufian period, it grew on the borders of forest and grasslands, and during the Younger Dryas, it became less available as these forests contracted. Emmer needs at least 400 millimeters, or 16 inches, of rainfall a year. Like all Neolithic agriculture in the Near East, it relies on winter rains. So during the Younger Dryas, it rained less, so its habitat shrank. Wild emmer has a brittle rachis, the rachis being the part that connects the seeds to the stem. So in the wild, this part breaks easily so that the stem can easily separate from the plant and dispersed by rain, wind, and animals. Hopefully the seed ends up somewhere in new soil so that the plant can grow anew. Additionally, in wild emmer, the seed remains in the seed coat, also called the gloom, and the rachis breaks before the gloom. So the seed stays in its seed coat while the wind blows it around. And then eventually it'll find its way into dirt and reproduce. The tendrils of the plant will break through the seed coat and into the soil, and it'll grow into new emmer. This is how the plant reproduced for millions of years before human interference. The problem for gatherers is that most seeds are lost. Again, because the process of losing seeds is the way it reproduces. This leads to a short window when mature seeds are available to be harvested. So for foragers, small seeded grasses need less water, so they can survive in a wider range of environments, but people put in more work for less nutrition because the seeds themselves are smaller and less nutritious. Whereas for large seeded grasses like cereals, they need more water, but they're more relatively dense with nutrition, mostly carbohydrates, some protein. So the most important trait introduced by domestication and human artificial selection resulting in genetic modification, you know, the most important trait is that seeds stay on the plant. So instead of breaking off as soon as they're mature with domestic plants, the seeds stay on until they're being threshed or, you know, processed by farmers. This is what makes cereal agriculture possible at all. Otherwise, you would spend all this work growing the plants themselves, but the seeds would fall off and you wouldn't be able to use them or eat them, which means your time would be wasted. The second most important trait selected for by these early farmers is larger seeds. You know, this allows people to put in the same amount of work, but to derive more nutrition from it. And this is where you find the cultivated plants with the biggest seeds and plant more of those. And over time, you'll have bigger seeds. In both cases, these were most likely to be gathered by foragers in the first place. Yeah, so even before people are cultivating them, when we're still talking about people going to wild stands of plants in order to gather them, you know, the seeds that, for genetic reasons, are most likely to stay on the plant for longer are more likely to be on the plant when humans get there. And large seeds are less likely to be lost during transporting or processing, you know, less likely to fall through the holes in the basket or whatever. So both mutations make them more likely to be replanted and to enter the cultivation process. So, of course, like I said, cultivation is when humans participate in the reproduction of wild plants. For example, you know, saving some seeds to plant near your village to make the walk from your home to where food grows shorter. So in addition to gathering in the wild, people are intentionally planting these seeds in deposits of alluvial soil, which, like I said, can be deposited by rivers, lakes, or rain. It often shows up at the bottom of these valleys where people are living. So like I said, cultivating wild plants is an important prerequisite for domestication. You have to understand every stage of their life cycle. And you have to know how to encourage them throughout and what, you know, what conditions they favor. So just as seeds that stay on the stem for longer and larger seeds are more likely to be foraged by foraging peoples, plants with these characteristics are more likely to go through the cultivation process and be selected for more intensive growing. And of course, the more intensively people are cultivating these crops, the more likely they are to replant, you know, the seeds from favorable plants in intentionally prepared farmland, you know, inching towards domestication. So the only step remaining is artificial selection, when you save and replant seeds from better plants to grow more of those better plants. One of the most obvious traits that people could select for is, of course, larger seeds. So this brings us to the final stage, which is domestication. Now again, if we see in a human settlement seeds that are larger than wild plants would be able to produce, that is a pretty good sign that people are genetically 
modifying their domestic crops in order to produce larger seeds. And we see the first clear signs of this domestication in the early 8000s BCE, say around 8800 BCE, in this exact region of northeastern Syria and southeastern Turkey. They're often found alongside einkorn, which we'll talk about in just a bit. I also mentioned a stronger rachis. In other words, the seed is likely to stay on the stem for longer. This is caused by a single recessive mutation in a major gene. So once humans know what to look for, it wouldn't be that difficult to select for it and modify the plant's genes accordingly. So the earliest type of domestic emmer was hulled wheat, H-U-L-L-E-D, wheat. This is when the seed stays inside its gloom or seed coat, even after you thresh it, which is the process that breaks the rachis and removes the seeds from the stem manually. The seed coat is tough and inedible, and you have to grind the grain to get rid of it. If you don't sieve your ground grain, you're likely to get chunks in it, even after you ground it into flour. These chunks of seed coat can get stuck in your teeth and cause gum infections and tooth decay. So one solution is naked wheat or free threshing wheat. This makes the seed coat more brittle than the rachis, which means it breaks off before threshing, leaving only the edible parts to remain afterwards. This makes processing and preparation easier. It makes better food and is better for your dental health. And naked wheat would be common across the Middle East by around 8,000 BCE. So durum wheat is a modern type of naked wheat. It's a descendant of wild emmer, and it gradually replaced early domestic types of emmer. In third millennium Sumerian city-states, we see that durum wheat was a step up from barley, quality-wise. And today, durum is used to make pasta. So switching from emmer to einkorn, a different type of wild wheat. Einkorn is German for one kernel because there is only one grain per spikelet. It's the spiky part of the top. Einkorn was also domesticated in the Karajada region. We see evidence of domestic einkorn by around 8400 BCE. Its yield is lower compared to other cereals, but it can survive in worse soil. So like I said, emmer and einkorn are both species of wheat. They belong to the same genus. They grow in similar habitats and have similar growing patterns. This led to similar domestication practices for both. It's possible that einkorn might have been a weed in emmer fields. Throughout the whole Neolithic, emmer tends to outnumber einkorn by around 90%. It may have never grown separately from emmer. Like I said, they live in the same climate, same conditions, and because the seeds are similar and they have the same life cycle, it's possible they may have been processed and planted together without people ever noticing that they were processing two different species of grain. Einkorn is less toxic than other cereals for people with celiac disease, so it's possible that people might not have originally been evolved to process lots of gluten, and the gluten tolerance might have evolved over time, like lactase persistence, which we'll talk about later. In a few episodes, we'll talk about genetic evidence that barley was domesticated in Palestine around 7,000 BCE. But wild barley grows across the Fertile Crescent. You know, in the region we're looking at today, barley was intensively gathered along with emmer and einkorn, but then as now most people tend to prefer wheat. This might explain why wheat went through an earlier domestication process than barley. But barley is more tolerant of salt in the soil, and it can survive in a wider range of temperatures, which is why later on we'll see it grown in massive quantities in later state societies like Sumer. We'll also see it used for beer, which is probably also true early on. It's okay to use a worse grain for beer because you want the chemical reaction from the sugars in the seed. You're not eating the seed itself. Speaking of which, I'll have a longer section on beer when we get to the pottery Neolithic. Not least because it's easier to brew beer with pottery than it is with limestone basins. So this is just a brief overview. There are a few reasons to brew beer. Cereals are easily transported and stored. It's fun to get drunk. And aspects of the beer making process can increase the nutritional content, especially if you want to drink wort. And in the kind of low alcohol content beer that people would have been drinking, there would still be a fair amount of nutrition available for people, all of which would lead to a selective advantage for people who make and drink beer compared to others. So across world history, beer and similar low alcohol content beverages have been associated with several types of major occasion, big construction projects, big labor projects, you know, harvesting, as well as ritual ceremonies like coming of age, weddings, and funerals. The thing that ferments sugars into ethanol is brewer's yeast, which is a type of fungus, there are many different species of yeast in the wild, and only a tiny handful are used for brewing. 
Wild yeast is present in the air. All it needs to ferment are water and sugars. So, you know, fruit juice left outside would be perfect conditions for yeast to start fermenting that into wine. It's probably how people discovered wine. We'll talk about that later. So talking about grain alcohol or beer, there are three stages in brewing. So stage one is malting, where you allow the grain seeds to sprout. Stage two is mashing, where you break down the starches into fermentable sugars. Then stage three is fermentation, where you turn the sugars into alcohol. So basically you want to start by soaking your cereals in water. The seeds will start to sprout like they would in the ground. And the grain develops an enzyme to break down starch into simple sugars, making them easier to ferment. Now you have malted grains. Now you want to dry this out and grind it up. And then add this ground malt to a mixture of additional raw grains and hot water. The enzymes from the malting process will convert the starch into fermentable sugars. This process is called mashing. And the mashing process almost doubles the caloric content so that it has seven calories per gram instead of four. This new sugar is called maltose. You can think of malt in old-timey milkshakes. So now you have water full of maltose. This mixture is called wort, W-O-R-T. To start fermenting, you add yeast to this wort. The yeast secretes enzymes to help it digest this maltose. In other words, it breaks the sugars down so that the yeast can eat them. This turns the maltose from the sprouted grains into ethanol, or alcohol, which is less nutritious, but it does get you drunk. There are some misconceptions about this, including some I put in an earlier version of the episode. I said that because of the low pH and anaerobic storage, beer had a long shelf life. This wasn't necessarily true for the distant past. Shout out to listener David Boschko for pointing this out. I'll go over this in a future episode on beer, but essentially... It's hard to store a starter for yeast without also storing bacteria, which means it's difficult but not impossible to keep bacteria from growing in the beer once you brew it. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily make it poisonous, but it does make it sour, like yogurt. And this is increasingly the case if you store it for a long period of time. So because yeast works faster than bacteria, it's a good idea to drink the beer that you've brewed as quickly as possible. Otherwise, the bacteria will grow in it. Speaking of bacteria, let's talk about dental health. So dental caries is a type of infection that leads to tooth decay. Processed cereals, which people are eating more and more of, are high in fermentable carbohydrates, which caused pretty terrible oral health during the Neolithic. This is not a new problem. Caries appear wherever people rely on high-carbohydrate foods. For example, at one site in Morocco during the 12,000s BCE, over 50% of surviving teeth had carious lesions, and 94% of adults had caries. They weren't eating processed grains, but they were eating whole oak acorns, which have low tannin content and don't need extensive processing. They were probably collected while unripe and stored for longer because they were more sweet at that stage and more likely to stick in their teeth, hence the tooth decay. So a bacteria called Streptococcus mutans is the main cause of caries today. Genetic evidence shows an exponential population explosion, which happened sometime between 12,000 and 1300 BCE. So if you look at the middle of that period, we're looking around 7,000, 6,000 BCE, which of course is the period when the vast majority of people in the Near East were adopting processed grain as a staple of their diet. So these bacteria adapted to the oral environment in a few different ways. They learned to process sugars more efficiently, they learned to compete against existing mouth bacteria, and defend against increased oxidative stress, as well as the acidic byproducts of their own metabolism. Because they reproduce asexually, these new adaptations could spread quickly, again because every creature is more or less a clone. And there are a couple ways these bacteria could spread within a community. So via population density and frequent close contact, people sharing food and utensils, poor oral hygiene, and shared childcare. Think of kids chewing on stuff and then other kids chewing on the same stuff, and suddenly all the kids now have mouth bacteria. And of course, physical wear and tear on the teeth didn't help. Like I said, chunks of gloom or seed coat can get stuck and cause gum disease. You know, you use rocks to grind your grain down, but that introduces little pieces of rock into the flour, which can cause serious tooth damage. People later solve these problems with sieves, which we'll see evidence of later on. 
but the weaker your enamel is, the more vulnerable it is to decay. And if you undergo periods of malnutrition or some other kind of physiological stress during childhood and puberty, your enamel does not grow over places in your teeth, which of course makes them more vulnerable to tooth decay. So some people dealt with this by pulling teeth. We'll see it at Ali Kosh in Iran, as well as Paleolithic Morocco, which I just mentioned, as well as Neolithic Italy. It's common to remove the front incisors, you know, your front teeth, even though most diseases start at the back of the mouth. This practice of removing front teeth is often extremely common within communities. So 90% of specimens at that Moroccan site have their front teeth removed, as well as 27% of women at Neolithic Italian sites. No men, though. This may have been an initiation ritual or a mourning ritual, or maybe carried some other cultural meaning. It would have made every other aspect of life harder and would have introduced more opportunities for infection into the mouth, which isn't great, but they clearly had some kind of reason to do it. So to take a look at the kind of labor involved in growing cereals, now, cereals are an annual crop, which means the tasks for managing them repeat on an annual basis. In the Near East, this follows the rainy season in the Eastern Mediterranean. So you would plant your crops in autumn and harvest them in late spring. So in early autumn, you would want to clear your land, you know, cut down trees and bushes with a stone axe, maybe burn the land to clear it. You would want to till your soil, probably starting with a stone hoe or a digging stick. Later on, we will see plows, either pulled by humans or animals. This gets easier later on in the autumn when the first rains soften the soil. In October and November, you want to plant your crops by pulling up weeds, like we'll see in the Nenurta myth. The first way to plant seeds would have been sowing them broadcast. In other words, just holding them in your hand and throwing them out at the soil. This is the etymology of the word podcast. In much later periods, we'll see plows with seed funnels. So you can have a single tool that disrupts the soil and puts the seed in it at the same time. So in this Eastern Mediterranean region, 80% of rain falls between December and February. And most of the Near East has temperate winters without freezing, which of course is good when your grain is in the ground during the winter. And you're going to keep weeding your fields and chasing off animals and so on until April or May, which is harvest time. It's a little bit early for barley and a little bit later for wheat. During the Natufian period, people were harvesting with stone sickles. Later on in Mesopotamia, we'll see ceramic sickles. In both cases, we see a sickle sheen build up on the blade, which is silica buildup from the stems of these plants. So you're going to want to store all your grain together to dry it out. And after it's dry enough, you're going to thresh it, which is when you apply force in order to detach the grain from the rest of the plant. In other words, you're breaking the rachis and separating the seeds from the rest of the plant. You can do this by beating the sheaves with stone or wood or trampling it. Later, you can use livestock to trample it. Or you can use a flail, which is kind of like a set of nunchucks. Step two, now that the seeds and stems are physically separated, is to winnow them. So a winnowing fan looks like an oar. There's a bit in the Odyssey about that. You use it to scoop up the thresh grain and throw it into the air. The edible seeds are denser and they'll fall to the ground, while the other parts of the plant are less dense and they'll float away in the wind. Now that you have all of your edible seeds and no other parts of the plant, you're going to want to store them. So your household or maybe your village is going to have an annual store of grain that everyone dips into every day to make food. You're going to keep this area dry and away from animals ideally separated into silos so that if one cache becomes contaminated with bacteria or rats or whatever, that the entire grain supply for the village is not contaminated. Every day you're going to need to make food. So you're going to take a daily amount of grain and grind it with stone grinding tools called querns. We also see mortars and pestles. In both cases, unless you use certain types of stone, the grinding process is going to introduce gravel into the flour and you're going to want to filter that out if you can. If you're still using hulled grain, then you're likely to end up with bits of seed coat in it, which you're also going to want to filter out with a sieve. So by the late 7000s BCE, cereal agriculture had spread across the Near East. It formed a majority of people's diets, and society was increasingly organized around agricultural labor. Speaking of labor, before the Neolithic, people relied on foraging to get their food, and because they were foraging from a wide range of plants and animals, the daily tasks would be different. Obviously, they'd be different from person to person. They would change with the seasons. Spring and summer would be more productive than winter, 
more plants and more animals are being born and growing. But every adult will participate in productive activity most of the time. So you might spend more time harvesting in spring and summer, and you might spend more of winter fixing tools or mending clothing or things like that. So at first, cereal cultivation appears as a time saver. It's going to save you the trip from your home to where the grain grows. As you fiddle with growing conditions and make it more efficient, it's saving you even more time and labor. Again, putting in less time and getting more out of it. It's a fairly dense source of calories, which is one of the main reasons people targeted these particular species. You know, you already have grinding tools for small seeded grasses. You may as well also grind these large seeded grasses that you're beginning to cultivate. So, you know, why not invest more time in these cereals? After all, all the time you're spending investing in this extremely calorically, nutritionally dense food source is time safe that you could be spending doing more labor intensive tasks, right? You know, so why not invest more time, develop more land, plant more crops, spend more time tending these crops rather than foraging? Because of course, this is a more certain outcome and you're getting more dense nutrition as a result. Of course, cereal agriculture is scalable. You're probably not already cultivating every inch of alluvial soil within walking distance, but you can, you know, especially if it rains enough to be able to cultivate land away from the river floodplains. It's a lot of work to set up and maintain this land, especially to develop new land. But imagine how much food you'll have when grain grows on all of it and, you know, you have access to all of this dense nutrition. So you see that over time, people are investing more and more time in cereal agriculture. People are shifting their focus from day-to-day -day foraging of a wide variety of plants and animals to focus on an annual harvest of a few species, mostly grains. And like I said, the year is becoming divided into seasons, each with very different tasks, all of which are focused on growing grain and harvesting it. But eventually you're going to hit the limit of your natural bounty. You're going to end up planting grain in so much soil that weeding it becomes a full-time job, or you'll run out of free alluvial soil and have to start tilling and watering new land, which of course is much more labor-intensive than letting the river do it. In these river valleys, you have a finite amount of free alluvial soil. Eventually you run out of efficient ways to do this efficient thing, and every solution to this problem involves a whole lot of new labor. The ultimate outcome being that farming is much more work than foraging. You're working more hours a day. The work is harder on your body. You know, you're bending more, you're carrying more weight, you're doing more repetitive motions. And ultimately, the agricultural diet, relying on grain and incorporating a much smaller range of different kinds of plants and animals, your diet is going to end up being less nutritious. So during the Natufian period, men and women did more similar types of work to each other. You know, we see hunting, gathering, processing food, and making tools. And most of these tasks seem to be shared, although men did seem to use their throwing arms more during the Natufian period, probably because they were hunting with spears. But we see new types of labor during the Neolithic. Some types of labor get more intensive, for example, gathering and processing cereals and construction and cutting down trees and transporting limestone blocks for lime plaster, as well as building with mud bricks. So in general, from skeletal evidence, we see a much wider range of activities during the Neolithic. The trend over the entire Neolithic is towards more intensive labor. Cereal agriculture seems to have introduced greater stress on both sexes, but women seem to have worked harder. We'll talk about this more in a future episode. So we're going to finish this episode by looking at a major monumental site called Gürbekli Tepe, which is Turkish for Potbelly Hill. So this is the world's oldest known megalithic site, built 6,000 years before Stonehenge. Construction began during the pre-pottery Neolithic A period, around the late 9,000s BCE. So Gebekli Tepe is most famous for at least 55 huge limestone pillars that are arranged in about 20 concentric circles. Each pillar represents a massive investment of both labor and resources. Since they were carved from boulders, it started off as much as 50 tons. The most common arrangement is 10 pillars arranged in a circle. Sometimes we see several concentric rings of pillars. But always we see two taller pillars in the middle facing each other. They have a similar design to other similar pillars at nearby sites, which probably indicates that Gebekli Tepe was a ceremonial center for a larger culture with a shared tradition of making these kind of sculpture-type pillars. So these limestone pillars are generally T-shaped. They seem to represent people, with the crossbar at the top representing people's shoulders. They're erected in sockets, dug straight down into the limestone bedrock. 
and the outside of the pillars are often decorated with designs indicating arms, hands, loincloths, and decorated belts. The outer pillars are smaller than the two central pillars. They always look inwards towards them, but they are made in the same representational style. It seems to be a deliberate choice. Again, they're of a similar style to other smaller sculptures at nearby villages in the region. Each ring of pillars stands in a hole that had to be dug out of the ground. It would take 32 adults one week just to dig the hole. And then, of course, people had to erect the pillars and then eventually fill the hole back in. The reason there are several different monumental sites at Gebekli Tepe is because after a period of using this monumental site with these rings of pillars, like I said, people would fill them in completely and then dig another hole nearby later on to put new monumental pillars in. So let's take a look at the scale of these pillars. The largest is 7 meters tall, and it weighed 15 tons when completed. So it weighs as much as 8 Ford F-150s, or 4 male African bush elephants. More typical pillars weigh between 2 and 6 tons. So 1 to 3 really big cars, or 1 to 2 elephants, depending on which type. The average pillar was about 1.5 meters tall, but for a stick it would be much taller. On a horizontal surface, with a wet ground and no rollers, it would take seven adult men to drag these pillars across the ground, and twice as many to drag it up the hillsides that we often see these monumental sites erected on. And of course, each pillar represents a huge amount of additional labor. You would have to smooth the sides with various sanding techniques and carve the reliefs into the surface of the stone with flint and basalt tools. Of course, we're still in the Stone Age, so all tools would have had to be made out of stone. So with tools available, you got, you got your hands, you got rope, you got the power of leverage you yeah know. you you might have some local trees you can chop down to for make law. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, for rollers. rolling logs yeah 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 um, but i mean like pulleys do they even have pulleys well what would you attach it to <laughs> i don't know yeah. it's worth pointing out that this was not built by aliens just a whole bunch of people with a whole lot of rope well i mean bunch of aliens with a bunch of rope <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, they came in the ufos but yeah you still gotta haul it up with rope yeah yeah that's my conspiracy theory that the <laughs> aliens did build stonehenge but they had the same technology as the people who would have built stonehenge <laughs> they have the same there's they have the same stone tools <laughs> the same rope we're still figuring this out too our rock is just mars rock <laughs> they came here like a boat launched on a catapult <laughs> Space canoe. <laughs> they have to row. Man, rowing in a vacuum sure is hard. They might have carried water to make the ground wet. They might have used wooden sledges to drag the pillars along the ground, like they would later in Egypt with the big blocks of limestone they used to build the pyramids. And they also might have used these pillars to quote unquote walk upright, like the sculptures at Rapa Nui, otherwise known as Easter Island. If you get one person on either side and one person behind holding a rope attached to the top of the pillar, you can rock it back and forth and move it forward while making the pillar appear to walk. Have you seen the videos of them walking them? Yeah, so you're gaining like an inch at a time with that rock. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one way, but that is already after you've got it out of the ground. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And erected it in the proper configuration. Mm -hmm. Getting it out of the ground seems like one of the harder <laughs> parts right there. I guess you could just dig the ground or around it, remove the ground. Oh, this is incredible. So clearly, people had the time, effort, and willpower to haul these 10-ton blocks of stone. This shows that they were not starving. Of course, this would have required them to have calories to spare. We're going to talk about large feasts associated with this kind of construction. We assume that they were erecting these kinds of monumental centers for some kind of religious benefit. But of course, it's always fun to throw a party and meet new people and so on. Another central concept that we'll be following throughout seasons one and two is the concept of a public building. That is, a building that serves the needs of the entire community without being a private residence for a particular family or household. So at this time and place, most homes were small huts often round or oval, partially dug down into the ground, in a similar style to Natufian houses. 
But also at four nearby villages, we see buildings which contain the same T-shaped pillars that we see at Yerbekli Tepe. These appear to be non-residential buildings, in other words, public buildings, you know, buildings set aside to serve the needs of the entire community and not just one household. It's unclear this far back in history exactly what they used these public buildings for, possibly for certain rituals, possibly for storing information. You know, the monuments themselves might record some kind of myth or historic alliance, or it might have just been a public meeting place for the village. Yerbekli Tepe represents the biggest known collection of public buildings from the pre-Pottery Neolithic. Probably around 20 of them in various stages of excavation. These were pits dug into the ground with limestone pillars and benches between them. So these monumental pits that we've been talking about seem to have served the same purposes as public buildings. In addition to the limestone pillars, we see benches between them for large numbers of people to sit and presumably do something. So it's common to assume that these spaces were used for some kind of ritual. The construction of the monumental space itself might have been the ritual, or it might have been the necessary prelude to a specific ritual that would have happened within the monumental space. You know, either way, we see lots of ideology bound up in all this work they're doing. We see animals carved on pillars and depicted in sculptures, for example, gazelles, wild asses, wild bulls, and boars with big tusks, as well as birds, snakes, foxes, scorpions, and various predators. These may have been totems of specific families or clans. They may have been figures in folklore, or the animals themselves may have been worshipped as deities or animal spirits. We see similar animal symbols across southeastern Anatolia and northern Syria, as well as similar designs on decorated stone cups. So the fact that this iconography was shared across this region might indicate that these people shared some kind of religious worldview. You know, at the very least, we have evidence for feasts and ritual practices. It's also likely that they shared some kind of mythology or worldview, and maybe some kind of group identity that transcended the village that they belonged to. In which case, whatever they were doing at Gebekli Tepe would have been a prominent way to solidify these group identities. To quote a 2012 article by Oliver Dietrich and Associates, these new artistic themes might have been, quote, part of a system of symbolic communication that preceded writing as an essential method of storing cultural knowledge. These people must have had a highly complicated mythology, including a capacity for abstraction, end quote. And it's worth reiterating that this world was already fully developed before the development of agriculture that we'll be talking about in the next couple episodes. So most archaeological sites are underground because of natural processes, like alluvial buildup or sand blowing around and eventually burying sites over a long period of time. But like I said, these monumental pits at Gerbekli Tepe were intentionally buried by the people that used them. So another idea that we're going to introduce is the idea that an object has a use life. In other words, you don't just throw away an object when you're done with it. You know, the idea is that there's a ritual process for ending the object's lifespan. The flag retiring ceremony is an example of this right. in modern times. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's common to see broken figurines, which might symbolize the death of a person, or at least the death of the object. Later on at Chachalharyuk, we'll see grinding stones intentionally broken. We'll also see intentional house destructions, for example, at Sabi Abyad. We're going to see ritual burning of temple furniture much later at Unug. This idea of a set series of practices for ending an object's use life seems to be common across the ancient world. At Gerbekli Tepe, they seem to have backfilled the sites after they were used. It's not clear exactly when. They might have used the site once, they might have used it for a certain period of time, or they might have backfilled the site after a certain event precipitated it. You know, like I said, this is why there are so many different monumental pits at Gerbekli Tepe, all with their own rings of pillars. So before they would backfill the pits, they would clean the floors so we don't see any regular debris if there was a roof over the pit, they would remove it. We don't see any traces of a roof. And then they would smash the central pillars into pieces. So again, this process of ending the use life of a particular monumental pit involves destroying the central pillars in the center of the pit. Then you would fill the pit with rubble from limestone quarries, as well as flint tools and debris for making tools. So just kind of household everyday debris, and also lots and lots of animal bones from feasts. And of course, this backfilling represents a huge amount of labor you don't only need to coordinate the labor for digging out the pit or hauling the stone from one place to another or carving the stone into pillars. You also need to coordinate a whole bunch of labor to bury this pit, you know, when you're done with it. 
man, like, cleaning up after a party hungover sucks, but, like, you know, destroying the entire building while hungover, <laughs> that is just awful. It's just a really tough party cleanup, you know, and then, like, you know, the people who wake up earlier got to do it first, you know, people who wake up later, like, oh, I would have helped if you woke me up. It's just really, it's just a whole deal. So there is a kind of trans-historical relationship between these kinds of huge labor projects and the kind of leadership necessary in order to organize these labor projects. And one way that these leaders establish and maintain their power is often by throwing feasts, big parties associated with the work that people are doing. So another thread that we'll be following in this podcast is the evolution of feasting events. So we're going to look at two different kinds of events involving lots of people collaborating on a construction project and then sharing a big meal together afterwards. One type is a work exchange, which is a kind of potluck between equals, and the other is a work feast, which emphasizes an unequal relationship between host and guest. So starting with that first type, work exchanges, these are common across all societies. We can think of a kind of barn raising. So this is where a small group of friends and or family comes together, bringing kind of everyday food, maybe whatever beer they're brewing. You know, they come together, they do this one specific task. Everyone contributes equally. Everyone contributes equally to the dinner. Everyone shares the dinner. The most important aspects being emphasized are equality and reciprocity. There's a strong obligation to return the favor later. That is everyone who shows up to the, that is everyone who shows up to the potluck will be expected to show up to the next potluck whenever the next person at the group needs everyone's help with raising a barn or whatever. But there's also a second type called a work feast. These usually occur in larger, more complex societies. The events themselves are larger, often including up to several hundred people recruited from larger social networks. That is not just one group of friends or family. The food itself tends to be more exotic, more labor-intensive, maybe gathered from farther away. Attendance may or may not be mandatory, as enforced by the leader. And the key difference is that unlike the kind of barn-raising potluck work exchange, this work feast is not an equal exchange. You show up, you eat this kind of labor-intensive food that you could never produce yourself. The event itself includes more people than you would be able to invite to your own party that you would be throwing. And most importantly, all the work you're doing is organized by a leader who is throwing this feast in return for all of the work that you're about to do for that leader. So it's not an equal change between people who are expected to return the favor later on. It's kind of a reification of the leadership of a particular leader who is marshalling a huge amount of labor that no individual person will be able to control or influence, often for a project that glorifies the power of that leader, if not the entire community. So starting in the mid-9000s BCE, we see huge deposits of animal bones near Gerbekli Tepe, which is evidence of large feasting events. These include huge amounts of animals, mostly gazelle, wild bull, and wild ass. Each of these animals would feed several people, and the labor involved in hunting these animals and procuring this meat probably was part of the labor-intensive nature of gathering food for this feast. Around the same time, we see large-scale storage of grass seeds, at least temporarily, and grain storage will be one of the hallmarks of agricultural society going forward. At Gerbekli Tepe, we see several large limestone basins, which seem to be large permanent fixtures of public buildings. These are similar to other containers across the Near East, some of them up to 160 liters or 42 gallons. And in these limestone basins, we see evidence of oxalate, which is a chemical byproduct from brewing beer, indicating that these basins might have been used to make beer. In one of these basins, we see a shoulder blade of a wild ass, which might have been used for stirring or sifting. In Syria, we see another bone in a container near equipment for processing grain, so it may be another part of the brewing process. All of this is not certain evidence of beer. For example, we don't see any evidence of the tools required to process and grind grain. So if they were brewing beer, some of the processing probably happened elsewhere. You know, and people would have brought either finished beer or, you know, malted grains or whatever to finish the process at Gerbekli Tepe to provide beer for these feasts. 
You know, this suggests that these monuments might have been built as a result of work feasts. The participants may have been paid in beer, like the workers who built the pyramids. The kind of beer they would have been drinking, which is low in alcohol content, would contain more calories than an equivalent amount of unfermented grain. It's extremely labor-intensive to hollow out these stone basins to brew beer in large quantities, but once you do, you can brew lots and lots of it and get a large amount of people drunk. So Gebekli Tepe might have been an event space for one of the first cultures to cultivate cereals, so people would be both willing and able to make lots of beer for big parties. And of course, if you drink with people from neighboring villages, you can strengthen your alliance with them, you know, meet future marriage partners and future training partners and so on. Alcohol might have been tied to religious rituals. You know, we have a ritually important space, which is visually impressive and completely unique for these people. You combine that with a mind-altering experience. We know of beer. It's not out of the question that they might have had access to other mind-altering plants. You know, all of this would strengthen people's relationship with the gods or spirits or ancestors, you know, whatever is important to them. And also, if these kinds of feasts seem fun, you know, beer and meat and carbs are all you need for a party, even today. We see scenes of dancing, both at Gebekli Tepe and elsewhere. And this kind of similar iconography of dancing scenes might be different representations of the same kinds of feasts that were going on at Gebekli Tepe. So I mentioned some kind of leader that might be cementing their authority with these kinds of work feasts. Lots of scholars agree that the process of increasing social complexity has a lot to do with leaders and feasts. These leaders power over food production and access to lots of social networks, you know, obtained through trade and also through patronage. You know, when you control grain and you can control who gets more of it, you can make powerful allies for yourself. You know, all of this would give certain types of leaders, to the extent that there are individual leaders during this period, you know, the ability to compel large groups of people to do work for them. To modern eyes, these kinds of massive stone pillars are unrelated to basic production. We know that people relied on a daily basis on hunting and gathering, making tools, and so on. And clearly, making giant stone pillars does not primarily serve that purpose in a materialist sense. But, you know, obviously in their worldview, building these monuments was super important, or at least worth the effort. We know that because they did it. And later on, we'll see much more evidence of people doing directly productive work for leaders and elites and so on. So this is kind of a positive feedback loop. You know, the more people you have working for the same entity, the more food that that entity controls, you know, whether that's a single leader or a council of elders or some kind of religious leader, the more food that that entity controls, the more they can pay the workers that do the kind of productive work necessary to maintain that leadership. Later on, we'll see manual laborers working in fields and herding livestock, weaving textiles and so on, all of which reifies and reinforces the real life political power that these entities hold. So it's worth asking which part of this process came first. Did leadership precede the social structures set up to support that leadership, or were there already these kinds of modes of communal leadership and labor organization that individual people were able to take charge of over time and bend towards their own individual ends? I don't know, and I won't have an answer in this episode. But one idea is that warmer temperatures, which we've talked about, led to more abundant resources. The idea here is that there are more natural resources available to everyone, which means that to the extent that people are storing goods communally in public buildings. Whoever has input into what the public building does with these grain surpluses can use this to reinforce, if not a higher status for them as individuals, a higher status for the public institution that stores the grain. You know, obviously you can use a redistributive feast, bake extra bread, brew extra beer, invite extra people to this party, and make it clear when people arrive to the party which entity is organizing the feast. Another important aspect of these feasts is the kind of gift exchange and exchange of high-quality, labor-intensive, exotic goods that can take place at these festivals. If you invite the chief of a village from the other side of the valley and you present them with a gift that only you could provide them with that they would never be able to get on their own, maybe because you have access to trade networks that connect you to sources of obsidian or seashells or whatever, that is a way of you know cementing, putting that chief in your debt via gratitude and you know forcing them to come up with some kind of gift 
that will, at the very least, convey that gratitude, if not, quote unquote, pay you back for it. Because we shouldn't be thinking of equal exchanges of goods of equal value that amount to a transactional payment where both sides leave, not owing anything to the other. You know, on the contrary, the goal is to set up permanent networks of patronage and gift exchange, exchange of high quality goods between leaders and between heads of families. You know, again, towards the end of setting up future trading partners, you know, future marriage partners, maybe future allies. So in other words, these feasts can become a venue for individual competition between chiefs or between leaders. Modern anthropological study of chiefdoms show that leaders often host lavish feasts, not only to give back to their community, but also to showcase acts of generosity that are meant to shame or intimidate other leaders. You know, again, you show off your reputation, you show off the connections you have, the wealth you've been able to accumulate, the amount of food you're able to grow. You know, all of this not only reifies your authority over the regular people showing up to the party, but also your relative position to the other chiefs showing up at the party. Either way, feasting is a universal human behavior. In other cultures, it's inextricably tied up with status hierarchies. You know, increasingly, we will see these feasts be venues for unequal exchange. You know, you can't throw a feast for your chief, and your chief will never give you the difference you give them. And of course, you'll never be able to convince your chief to haul around a bunch of rocks for you and a labor project that you came up with. But you sure will show up to your chief's feast and haul around a bunch of rocks for them. So we're going to end today by looking at the evidence for a head cult at Gerekletepe. So a head cult, or a skull cult, is a system of religious meaning where the head or the skull carries some kind of religious significance. Often during the pre-Pottery Neolithic, we see people keep the skulls of dead relatives around to use in rituals. Sometimes they paint the bone surface of the skull. Sometimes they'll cover the skull in a plaster representation of a human head, and then sometimes paint the plaster. At Quebecle Tepe, we see statues of humans that are more realistic than the stylized pillars. And notably, we see more statue heads than bodies, indicating that the heads were intentionally broken off. What if you just have a really lazy sculptor? Like, <laughs> ah, I'm done. Exactly. You only got to the neck. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, most anthropomorphic art that we see has been intentionally broken. The statue heads are often laid carefully by the pillars before or during the process of backfilling in the pits. And likewise, in this culture, you know, in this time and place, most anthropomorphic art seems to have been intentionally broken. So there may have been some kind of connection between the idea of representing a person in art and some kind of way to symbolically represent the death of that person, or at least the death of that representation of that person. Also at Gerbekli Tepe, we see art of severed heads. In one relief, we see a head next to a vulture and a hyena, both of which scavenge on dead bodies. We see a pillar with a headless body and an erect penis, combined with birds, snakes, and a scorpion. And we see sculptures of animals sitting on heads. So we don't see any burials, per se, at Gerbekli Tepe. You know, no graves as we'd understand them. But we do see lots of human bone fragments, and most of those bone fragments are from human skulls. So people probably brought in their loved one's skulls to this religiously or culturally significant site. Right. So you, there's like a special landfill for like grandpa's skulls. Yep. You know, just uh, like, bye grandma, punt it in. These skull fragments are often colored with ochre, which is a red mineral that contains iron oxide or rust. It's a very common pigment across the world, and it shows up a lot in graves and burials specifically. At some nearby villages, we see heads buried separately from bodies. One skull shows evidence of trepanation or a hole drilled in it. Yeah, that, that's actually, from what I understand, that's pretty cross-cultural. There have been a lot of cultures that have developed independently where at some point there is a skull with a hole in it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that happened before that person was a skeleton yep. when they were still living. Yep. And I've heard that once you get past the skin and into the bone, there are no more nerves there. So it doesn't hurt as much as you might think it would, but it, you're still drilling a hole. Yeah, but then you have a hole in your head. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just curious what that is like. Not curious enough to look up Google Images. Same, like, I'm not same, ready for yep, that. Yep. But I'm just curious what your day-to-day -day is like. <laughs> 
Does it heal over? Do you just got brain juice leaking out for the rest of your life? <laughs> poke you in the hole. Yeah, your leg like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, poke them in like they're like, who can't talk anymore? <laughs> ah, love this guy. Poke them in the brain again so they're like mouth. And he's like, I love you now. And at Gerbeckli Tepe, 10% of skull fragments show signs of defleshing. Often we see damage to the second vertebra, which is a sign of decapitation. So in other words, you know, the soft tissues in the neck line up with the second vertebrae. So if you're going to cut off the head before it's decayed, you're going to end up damaging the second vertebra, which we see often. We also see that skulls themselves show signs of being cut through. So we'd use a stone cutting tool to essentially cut through the skin and pull off the skin and flesh because what you want is the bone that doesn't degrade. So after people died, it seems that people would cut off their head, slice through the scalp, and remove the flesh, and sometimes cover it in a plaster representation of a living person's head. Maybe these skull fragments indicate that these skulls were intentionally broken at some point, and that these you know, broken fragments of used skulls, or skulls that have ended their use life, would be used to backfill the pet segue Beckley Tepe. I mean, it seems like it could be related to the whole, like, if you have a ritualized version of breaking your stuff mm -hmm. when it is time for it to be broken, mm -hmm. you know, you might do the same thing with a skull. So it's worth asking what we're looking at. Gerekli Tepe is often called the world's first temple. We do see some clear signs of ritual activity, but it is probably not that simple. The short answer is that we'll never know for sure, beyond the fact that it's a big event space with a lot of big rocks. Prehistory tends to be tricky like that. So that's it for now. Next episode, we're going to stay in the northern Fertile Crescent during the pre-Pottery Neolithic. We have some other sites in the same culture as Gerekli Tepe to look at. We're also going to look at the domestication of pigs and sheep and cattle, as well as legumes. So stay tuned. So previously, we met Ninurta, who's a warrior god. He has a talking mace named Shaur, and Ninurta is the rightful crown prince of heaven, because his father, Enlil, is the god of kingship, and he's currently campaigning against the Asag, a monster who threatens this kingship. He's raiding the god's cities and challenging Enlil's right to rule the cosmos. In Ninurta's heart, he beamed at his lion-headed weapon as it flew up like a bird, trembling the mountains for him. It raised itself on its wings to take away prisoner the disobedient. It spun around the horizon of heaven to find out what was happening. So, Shaur, the talking mace who can fly, goes out scouting and comes back with intelligence and gives Ninurta his advice. Hero! Beware! The weapon embraced him who it loved. The Shaur addressed Lord Ninurta. Okay, wait, quick sign. Is it me or is, is this, are all these lines a lot more sexually charged than... <laughs> than... Maybe. I, I don't know, man. <laughs> embraced by my weapon who loves me? Yeah, yeah but you know, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of words up here that, you know, hold on. Penetrate the flesh. Do heaven copulate it with the verdant earth. I mean, that for sure. That one for sure is a little horny. I'm just saying. This mace is born to be comic relief. <laughs> Hero! Net of battle! Ninarta! King! Irresistible against the enemy. Irresistible against the enemy. Yeah, um, just gonna do my famous fan dance in front of the <laughs> enemy <laughs> with my mace covering up my junk. <laughs> Irresistible against the enemy. Vigorous one. Wave which submerges the harvest. King, you have looked on battles. You have triumphed in the thick of them. Ninurta, I will enumerate the names of the warriors you have already slain. The Kuliana, the dragon. The gypsum, the strong copper. <laughs> Are these like Kentucky Derby horse names? <laughs> <laughs> the hero, six-headed. Oh, there's god fucking damn. There's more. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Many of them. <laughs> <There's more. laughs> the strong copper. The hero, six-headed. <laughs> This is the single greatest thing I've ever seen. There's no way. These are all... Please tell me each of these have their own myth. The Anzu does. 
Does the six-headed wild ram? Does the bison <laughs> bull? Does the palm tree king? The palm tree king. <laughs> <laughs> I really wish he did. Behold, I'm the palm tree king. <laughs> you have stepped upon my grove. The only way to defeat the palm tree king is to take me on a date because of the palm dates. <laughs> the strong copper. The hero six-headed wild ram. The magalum boats. Lord Samanana, the bison bull, the palm tree king, the Anzu bird, the seven-headed snake, Ninurta, you slew them in the mountains. But Lord, do not venture again to a battle as terrible as that. Do not lift your arm to the smiting of weapons, to the festival of the young men, to Inanna's dance. Ninurta, Lord, full of fearsomeness, proud hero without fellow. This time, you will not equal the Asag. Ninurta, do not make your young men enter the mountains. So the Maces talked to locals, and they apparently told him that the Asag is unstoppable. But Ninurta disagrees. The hero, the son, pride of his father, the very wise, rising from profound deliberation. Ninurta, the lord, the son of Enlil, gifted with broad wisdom. The lord stretched his leg to mount the onager and joined the battalions. He went into the rebel lands in the vanguard of the battle. He gave orders to his lance and attached it by its cord. The lord commanded his mace and it went to his belt. The hero hastened to the battle. The mountains were smitten and cringed beside the battle legions of Ninurta. When the hero was girding on his mace, the sun did not wait. The moon went in. They were forgotten. As he marched towards the mountains, the day became like pitch. So this is the battle for the throne of heaven. The Asag leapt up at the head of the battle. For a club, it uprooted the sky took it in its hand. Like a snake, it slid its head along the ground. It was a mad dog, attacking to kill the helpless, dripping with sweat on its flanks, like a wall collapsing. The Asag fell on Ninurta, the son of Enlil, like an accursed storm. It howled in a raucous voice. Like a gigantic snake, it roared at the land. It dried up the waters of the mountains, dragged away the tamarisks, tore the flesh of the earth, and covered her with painful wounds. It set fire to the reed beds, bathed the sky in blood, turned it inside out. It dispersed the people there. At that moment, on that day, the fields became black scum. Across the whole extent of the horizon, reddish like purple dye. Truly, it was so. So here we have a bit of damage text. When we get to the gap in the text, I'll just say dot, dot, dot. The Lord howled at the mountains, could not withhold a roar. He reversed the evil that the Asag had done. Ninurta smashed the heads of all the enemies. He made the mountains weep. The Lord ranged about in all directions, like a soldier, saying, I will go on the rampage. Like a bird of prey, the Asag looked up angrily from the mountains. He commanded the rebel lands to be silent. Ninurta approached the enemy and flattened him like a wave. Like weeds, Ninurta pulled it up. Like rushes, he ripped it up. Ninurta's splendor covered the land. He pounded the Asag like roasted barley. He dot dot dot, its genitals. He piled it up like a heap of broken bricks. He heaped it up like flour, as a potter does with coals. The hero had achieved his heart's desire. I don't know what it did to the Asajj genitals, but he sure did something. That's uh, that's a little unsettling. Yeah, it's... You know. yeah. How do we get this guy to stop us with our stuff? We'll punch him in the nads. <laughs> no, they're so brittle. They'll break off and blow him wind. <laughs> so it's worth noting that Ninurta's triumph over Asag or disorder, is related to pulling up weeds. So in other words, conquering enemy lands is described with the imagery of removing non-domestic plants from an area of farmland in order to plant domestic crops there. And of course, the enemy is likened to weeds in grain fields. Whatever Ninurta does to the Asag's genitals, it comes right after he pounded the Asag like roasted barley. This can remind us of the process of castrating livestock to 
control which ones breed and which ones don't. Of course, human control over reproduction will be a central pillar of the domestication process. And also we'll see Ninurta's victory described in terms of making piles of stuff, like bricks or flour or coals for a pottery kiln. These will all be Neolithic innovations. And generally, we will see the institutional ability to store lots of stuff over a long period of time be one of the most important aspects in the growth of social complexity. So anyway, this story is set in mythological time, before the gods created the modern world. So in other words, in order to create the modern world, Ninurta has to institute corvée work, that is, when you pay your taxes by doing labor for the state. Well, yeah, I, I figured we were talking about agriculture. I was wondering when making people do the obscene amounts of work for it to work yep. come up. Yep. Yeah, there it is. At that time, the good water coming forth from the earth did not pour down over the fields. The cold water was piled up everywhere. It brought destruction in the mountains. Since the gods of the land were subject to servitude and had to carry the hoe and the basket, this was their corvée work. The Tigris did not bring up its flood and its fullness. Its mouth did not finish in the sea. It did not carry fresh water. The famine was hard as nothing yet had been born. No one yet cleaned the little canals. The mud was not dredged up. Ditch-making did not yet exist. People did not work in furrows. Barley was sown broadcast. So the problem here is that the world has not been created yet. We see no irrigation, which means that whatever rain falls is wasted. We see a whole lot of floods. We see no coercive human labor yet. We see no intensive grain farming yet, just sowing broadcast. There's no food surplus. And of course, famine will eventually result in mass death. So Ninurta solves the problem. The Lord applied his great wisdom to it. He made a pile of stones in the mountains. The hero acted cleverly. He dammed in the cities together. He blocked the powerful waters by means of stones. Now the waters will never again go down from the mountains into the earth. That which was dispersed he gathered together, where in the mountains scattered lakes had formed. He joined them all together and led them down to the Tigris. He poured carp floods of water over the fields. Now, today, throughout the whole world, kings of the land far and wide rejoice at Lord Ninurta. He provided water for the speckled barley and the cultivated fields. He piled up the harvest of fruits in garden and orchard. He piled up the grain piles like mounds. So again, we'll see victory is making piles of stuff, turning individual stones into a dam, consolidating fresh water via canals, and consolidating fruits and grain into an agricultural surplus. In other words, accruing real wealth from individual endeavors. And of course, all that will be important moving forward. And and the labor rights were great for everybody. Oh yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool, cool. Just want to make sure that everything was above board. Yeah.